Hello and welcome to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is the movement artist, director and theatre designer, Ken Nakajima. Hello, Ken, and welcome to the show. So for people who aren't familiar with you and your work as an artist and director, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Um, I'm Ken, um, movement artist, designer and director. Um, I would say my practice would be called as visual dance theatre. Mm-hmm. So it's an incorporation of well, pretty, pretty self-explanatory visual, da- visual arts, dance and theatre kind of combines into this um, symbiotic form. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of tend to like to explore um, the human condition through using mythology, um, psychology, mm-hmm. and sort of autobiographical elements to kind of infuse that into the body and into the space. Right. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so before we jump into all that, um, my first topic is identity. So I want to start off by asking you a day zero question. Can you remember the first time you entered the flow state, the zone, when you danced as a child? Yes, um, probably a few months in into doing hip hop. Um, right. Because that's kind of where I started my hip- dance journey. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a moment where your body is growing accustomed to the style of movement. Yeah. And so you feel like you're becoming much more comfortable with it. And in that moment, you kind of start to kind of appreciate what you're doing, right. what everyone's doing. You start to really enjoy it. And I think once I entered that state of just kind of executing a choreography for the first time, I was like, what, five? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a very euphoric mm. experience. And that sort of experience kind of comes to me every time I perform or every time I present a piece of work where it's sort of out, out of body yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of lose one part of yourself and this other part of you just kind of completely possesses your body. Mm-hmm. So it's really fun, but also kind of disturbing at the same time. Because right. I'm sure out of the space, you're like, oh, what, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And I always really kind of enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so hip hop is interesting. So what kind of hip hop music were you dancing to? And what was your particular style of hip hop? Because it's very broad, yeah. broad church. Um, I would say what they taught me was very, very traditional right. hip hop. So even the music was like from the 90s, a tribe called Quest. <laughs> okay, far yeah. Side, yeah, yeah, yeah. The older Black Eyed Peas, probably before Fergie Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is better. Yeah. But that's one man's opinion. Okay, cool. Um, so at five, like, how did, you, did your parents just sort of take you along to the dance studio and that kind of thing? Or um, I saw, I think everyone says this, I think. I saw like Michael Jackson. Okay, right, yeah. Controversially Chris Brown. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, like pre, well, there was a point where Chris Brown was somewhat respectable and then like not, so. Yeah, and because I, I think I saw him just, I can't remember which song it was, just like a music video on MTV or something. Yeah. Um, and just seeing these guys dance, mm. I was just like, I want to do that. And my parents were like, okay, nice. Right, let's, let's give it a go. And then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So just sort of moving on from that. So you were born and raised in Japan. Um, so it's kind of like a place that sort of, has, well, as certain parts of Japan are kind of seen as a sci-fi melting plot of very different sort of like cultural mm. influences. So can you think of a, a sort of a culture clash of new meeting old, which had a profound effect on you around that sort of time? Um, yes, it was yes and no, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of a cultural clash, because yes, Japan is very traditional, very conservative. Mm-hmm. 
as a culture. But at the same time, throughout history, there's always been a counter movement yeah. to that to sort of kind of relieve themselves of the pressure of being in such a, a rigid society. Mm-hmm. Um, even, for example, the 17th century Kabuki, for example. Yeah, yeah. That was a counter movement to mm-hmm. the really rigid and very traditional formats of theatre and performance mm-hmm. and the culture. And then, of course, you kind of jump to now. Mm. There's all of these subcultures and and even on TV, media, reality shows like the comedy, for example, mm-hmm. it's so extravagant and so over the top mm. and same with the subcultures i think it's just a way for young people to express that frustration mm. and trying to feel like they kind of want to come out of this conformity yeah of society um so yeah so i think growing up being exposed to that constantly and I, even i think most japanese people can say this that you're kind of you're kind of used to it yeah that it's like yes we have, we're told to live in this certain way, mm. but also there's a way for us to kind of relieve that frustration. Yeah. And I think that definitely applies to other cultures as well. Um, so I just kind of want to circle back a little bit because historically speaking, um, there has been like a quite a large American influence on Japan because obviously they re- rebuilt it after the Second World War. So a lot of uh, GIs that came over there basically transplanted a lot of American culture that then was taken up by uh, Japanese people. Um, generally speaking, I'm not an expert by any means. Um, and then that goes back to the idea of like hip hop and how like you have like hip hop, like Japanese sort of like hip hop, mm-hmm. um, which takes from obviously American hip hop, but does it in its own very particular way. And I just wondered in terms of through that sort of cultural prism of experiencing sort of, I guess like traditional American culture, but done in a Japanese way, is there anything you could sort of point to where you can see something that was taken from say like America per se, but then reinterpreted in a sort of Japanese uh, kind of way? There's like a whole like motorcycle gang yeah, yeah, thing yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also there's very problematic elements mm. of like, there's a certain subculture where they're really, um, use a lot of fake tan, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Darken their skin, mm-hmm. but I, I read this briefly that it was just because they thought, um, like black Americans were really cool. Oh, interesting. I've never heard of this before. Yeah, and okay, that, that's their only kind of legitimate point, which is wow. Yeah, <laughs> okay. And I think that's quite common in East Asia, where yeah, they would take a lot of influence from like black American culture. Yeah. Reinterpret it, appropriate it. Yeah. And kind of make it their own and not really justify it. Okay. And I think that's been a huge issue. Okay. For the last however many decades, like even in K-pop, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. K-pop would be nothing without hip hop. Yeah, yeah. That's, yes, that is interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, borrowing, um, should we say. I I guess like it's sort of interesting because in terms of like... Culture, uh, exporting a certain like culture, and then and saying like, okay, well, this is what we've kind of done with it. Let's see what you can kind of do with it, and then getting to a place where like, or we can authentically take something and then kind of make it our own, and it's kind of okay. Like we, ha- it's not really like appropriation. It's more like, oh, we've just decided to take like a left turn or, or um, a right turn, and I'm sure there is stuff that kind of um, exists like that, but I can't really I, off the top of my head. I can't really, <laughs> I can't really think of anything. All I can think of is just the very um, Americanized. Uh, uh, Japanese sort of hip hop that I've sort of vaguely come into contact with. Um, so just moving on. Um, so growing up, and this follows on from the uh, f- from the last question, um, we tend to have a few pop cultural heroes, like actors, musicians, and writers, which tend to change as our tastes develop. 
So who was your most embarrassing one and who was your most respected cultural hero in your adolescence? Um, I don't know if it's embarrassing, but I would say growing up, you know, here during like 2011, 2012 onwards, you know, yeah. when Tumblr came. Okay. That was a huge impact on like the youth. So mm -hmm. like, for example, that like, in 1975. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I just thought when I was like 13, 14, mm. I, I'd say even up to like 16, I just thought Matt Healy was such a mm. really cool guy. And like yeah. the whole aesthetic of that really like, we're all kind of making ourselves depressed. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, we were. <laughs> yeah, you're at that age. Yeah, yeah we were. Yeah. But, you know, that sort of aesthetic of just being like, oh, yeah. Oh, I hate life. Mm. Oh, it's so hard to be young, which is, I think, yeah. I think there were some valid points in that mm. culture. But looking back now, I'm just like, oh, it was, it was a little bit cringe. Yeah. Just a little bit. But it's funny that it's kind of coming back. Mm. So like even even far as back as like indie sleaze. Mm, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's coming back. It's coming back, yeah. And jeans are getting skinnier again. They are getting skinnier again, yeah. Which I, I don't know if I like, mm. but I mean, it's up to their own, I guess. Yeah. But it's interesting that it's all kind of circling back again. Yeah, well, there's always like these um, 20 year periods where culture, like say 20 years ago, because I'm old. Um, so I remember no. it like, I remember it the first time round to the skinny jeans and like the, the Hoxton, uh, <laughs> the Hoxton haircuts. Um, and yeah, the in indie music, I wasn't terribly into it at the time. I was much a bigger fan of like electronic music, mm. but it's always, but it's always the same way. So back, I'm trying to think when I was, when I was young, um, uh, what were they kind of looking back? I guess it would have been more like, 80s like the the cure um that kind of sort of like stuff i guess like nirvana because i already wasn't really around for that either <laughs> but it's interesting yeah but it is interesting generationally speaking each younger generation looks 20 years back in like in the past which actually isn't that far no. back it's quite close and um, one of the things i think about about this is um is because we've got the internet like you can, like nobody has to be out of touch. You already can just like Google something. You can, you know, I guess it's just whether you want to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so was Matt Healy your most respected, or most embarrassing? <laughs> um, I think a mixture mm. at that time. Okay. Um, of course there's other people who are, who are kind of more respectable that I admired yeah. at the time. But I think with Matt Healy, it, he was sort of, he acted as sort of like a counter of what a man should be. Right. In a way. Because he's quite, he's quite feminine. He's really yeah, he comfortable is, yeah. with the masculinity. Yeah. And I think at that age, being a boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was sort of, it was such a relief. Because mm -hmm. I feel like going to, because I went to two secondary schools. Yeah. Uh, when I moved here. And the first one was very conformative, very traditional. Boys do this, girls do that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, boys do what boys do you know they they take a lot from each other yeah and they kind of separate you know they, they suppress a lot and like they just need to feel like they're yeah yeah like the it mm. and then that was really frustrating for me growing up because i'm mm -hmm. not the most masculine of the masculine mm -hmm. and then so when people like matt healy came along or just other people throughout that tumblr era yeah or even before the indie sleaze era i was just like i'm like okay that's mm. so that's acceptable yeah I yeah can be a bit more relax i don't have to like dress in a certain way mm. to feel like a man or to feel more masculine yeah i can relax but then at the same time hip-hop 
yeah. was still a thing mm. within me. So, and I feel like certain parts of the hip hop culture is very hyper masculine. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, they kind of ignore mm. certain aspects of hip hop mm. that are a bit more feminine. Mm. But also the people that were involved in hip hop. Mm. So I feel like there's this, it was a, I found it a little bit restrictive in that sense. Yeah. I obviously, I was in a hip hop crew. Yeah. As well. Okay. What was your hip hop crew name? Oh, God. <laughs> Um, it wasn't me, by the way, I titled it or gave the name. I think it was called The Force. Okay, The Force. Yeah. Okay, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was mostly boys. Mm. Everyone from everywhere. Yeah. All across London. But it was a very, like, quite a hyper-masculine. Okay. Kind of crew. Yeah, there were girls as well. Yeah. But I think it was a very, like, uh, like yeah, we're, we're here to show up. Right. So I was kind of, kind of battling that, but at the same time, I was a bit soft as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Like, I was just like, yeah. you know, I loved opera. Right, yeah, yeah. classical music, I loved mm. my jazz. Right. You know, musical theatre every now and then. Mm. Theatre boy. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. But also like being part of the hip hop culture, but also being part of this. Yeah, that's interesting. You know? So it was, I was in a, such a weird contradictory place, like even my fashion. Okay. I, it didn't make sense right up until 2019 i would say okay um which brings me like nicely onto because you've spoken through your work deals with sort of sense of identity crisis so i want to take a moment here to examine the concept of identity crisis mm -hmm. in relation as you've sort of spoken about to your peer group and surroundings so i guess like just following on from that let's start at the very sort of specific point where you started questioning your place in the world because i think you mentioned you are of mixed heritage you're not um um, probably the first time I questioned it was probably five. Yeah. I would say. Um, because when I joined elementary school in Japan, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I didn't realize how, that's when I kind of was first exposed to xenophobia. Right. I didn't realize how conservative people were. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then sort of being called out or being pointed out for certain things, mm. being treated in a certain way that wasn't equal to others and that's right. a very um large issue in japan mm. in japan if you're mixed japanese if you're from another east asian country or if you have a darker complexion mm -hmm. um you're treated as like a sort of like an abnormality mm. they won't admit it yeah but it's very common okay i've heard it's getting better now yeah but i think being exposed to that throughout like my schooling in japan yeah um it was really hard for me to call Japan home mm -hmm. and, you know, visiting the UK as well. So I had, at the time I had two homes, but then once that started happening, I found it really hard to kind of have two places where I could call home. So yeah. I think I was slowly detaching yeah. from Japan, even from that age and just feeling very alone. Right, right, right. And I remember... I had like a bit of a dramatic moment as a kid, just mm -hmm. being like, do you know what? I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm just going to mm. take on the world on my own. Yeah. And that's that. And I think that's definitely um, caused some issues growing up. Mm -hmm. I think of just kind of this sense of longing for a community and just feeling accepted. Mm -hmm. and, and I still kind of struggle with that. Yeah. In terms of like building relationships and I still feel like I'm searching for a community. Right. Where I don't feel like I have to be pointed out. Yeah. And that's interesting because, um, 
Because there's like because um, there was a bit of a Ferrari when um, very recently when I believe uh, I think it was a lady in waiting asked somebody who was working you know where are you from where are you really from kind of like question and I was just like yeah it's really insulting um, to be like to be asked that and to be pressed into sort of corner but also to be able to ask that question and be able to share somebody's sort of like spit heritage and what they're in a sort of celebratory sort of like way of like okay you're from this this is what you do this is what I've sort of like encountered in a way that doesn't seem sort of compatible or sort of uh, uh, called out in a way um, because I think like in terms of like cultural exchange and our cultural um, like I, I don't really like the word sort of ed education but in terms of being able to think think through other people's experiences to broaden our own experiences I think that's sort of important um, so in terms of you was it your mother or your father that was like Japanese and what, what was this sort of like polarity where you were moving between the two places mm, so my dad's Japanese okay and my mum's Scottish oh okay right and yeah, even growing up, even the household was fine. Yeah. I think both both of them had lived in different places. Right. They had traveled. Yeah. Especially my mum. So they've always had a very relaxed point of view on what tradition and what culture is. Mm -hmm. And I think being exposed to Western culture at the same time. Yeah. I just didn't feel like I had to fit in a certain category yeah even though i felt like it so mm. that's another thing as well i think being in school in japan it's like i would have all these different references of music right and artists mm. and of course at the time doing opera yeah in tokyo you know i'm taking all these different information talking to these different people from all these countries mm -hmm. so for me like a very international sense yeah. of I don't know, exposure Yeah, yeah. was always there throughout my life. Mm -hmm. So I never felt like when I moved to the UK, mm. felt like I had to readjust in a certain Okay, way. right. Yeah, yeah. Because I was just kind of sort of used to that, mm -hmm. I guess, diversity or mm. having different people around me. So it just felt more natural. And of course, right. even though the UK has its problems. Yeah. But I think in a sense of different communities, that is more evident yeah. here. Mm -hmm. And I've seen in Japan, if that makes sense. It does, because I was thinking about like the Windrush uh, wind generation, um, which was a follow on to how like the specials got started in the late 70s. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Terror Hall. The lead singer of the specials recently um, passed away, but I went through a whole rabbit hole of figuring out, well, how did this come to be? Like, how did like this multicultural uh, band come to be? And it's through that integration of people coming over um, to work into these sort of communities. And then they realised at a certain point they had more in common than they didn't, essentially, of where they were sort of like working and yeah. those bonds are formed. And I just wonder, and again, like my knowledge of history is not particularly great here, but I wonder with like Japan, other than when the GIs were coming over to sort of rebuild and then like left, there hasn't maybe been such a great level of that cultural exchange of people actually specifically in on mass moving to Japan to yeah, find yeah. works that I guess that's just not something they really I, that I can sort of like think of is um whereas uh, yes as the UK has problems but we have had a history of um countries from the Commonwealth coming over here and working and integrating and that has created like a, a nice sort of like melting pole yeah. of cultural exchange um which way I think it enriches it enriches communities and enriches people's um, horizons, but then you also get into that nasty thing of like, oh no, it's bit you know in certain quarters it can be seen as sort of a, 
appropriation if it's done for the wrong things or it can be like the specials where they're fusing like punk and like Jamaican mm -hmm. music together and then creating something entirely new which is authentic to where they yeah. were um, uh, at um, just just sort of just sort of like thinking um, about this as well in terms of in terms of your sort of Japanese heritage what are some of the things that you sort of cherish um, about that and what are the sort of things here uh, sort of a more western like that you kind of think what are the two things you, you like about these two very different opposite things um, I think I do cherish that I'm very disciplined mm -hmm. and very structured as a person yeah that's a very Japanese thing right so I think Japan I think generally I can say that Japanese people are very efficient people right yeah, and I take yeah. pride in that mm. so for me, that kind of spilt into the way I live my life mm -hmm. or even in the way I make. Everything's quite polished. It's clean. Yeah. It's simple. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to go over the top. Yeah. It's like, well, this is it. This is what I want to show. And that's it. And okay. I do appreciate that. And then here I'd say, mm, let me think. I think the banter. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've always enjoyed like the humor here and even move when I first moved here, I just thought it was really funny mm. that people kind of self deprecated themselves as a form of humor. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. And the sarcasm, I think. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't thought about like, mm. I don't want to say what I appreciate in this country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so finally, just moving on from that question, and we kind of covered it a little bit, but how do you feel your creative identity has developed over the years, starting from early childhood when you were performing in theatres and operas in, in Tokyo? And we'll jump into that actually now a little bit more to becoming a freelance creative professional, like a director and choreographer in, in London. So tell me a little bit more about working in opera in mm -hmm. in Tokyo. Um, so that was through the same place where I was doing hip hop. It was sort of like an agency as well. Okay. So there was an opening for Madame Butterfly yeah. mm -hmm. at the New National Theatre in Tokyo. And then obviously I just auditioned yeah, and I got it. And then for me, I think being at that age, I didn't really take notice of the scale yeah. and the amount of money that goes into making these mm -hmm. like major league operas and productions. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to work with them and do like, two operas per year for like almost six years. Yeah. So for me, it was like a regular oh, wow. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I'd be taken out of school mm. during the summer. Yeah. And so for me, it was just like a really fun experience. Yeah. And then just kind of being part of that culture as well. Mm -hmm. And I think being exposed to certain things that I may have forgotten, but still very much so an influence mm -hmm. throughout my creative journey. Yeah. I feel like, in a way that I'm kind of circling back to the opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I do want to direct opera at some point. Okay, yeah. Not mm -hmm. as like the main thing. Yeah. But just sort of to give an homage to my younger self mm -hmm. in a way of being like, yeah, this, this, look how far you've come. Mm -hmm. Like you were performing then and now you're directing it. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was a very special time, mm -hmm. I think. And... I don't think I would be where I am in terms of the way I see without that opera experience, right. I don't think. Okay. 
I imagine it's quite intense though, because you're actually working on professional productions and stuff. So I can imagine, um, yeah, there's some sort of professionalness to it and also working with professional actors. How was that at a very young age? Um, I didn't really care. Right. And I've always been that way where I'm just like, I don't really take notice to that sense of superiority. Okay. So for me, it was just like, great, I'm here to work. You're here to work. Let's have a bit of fun. Okay. And see how it goes. Yeah. And, but yeah, I think at some points it was intimidating. Yeah. Just to see like these world-class musicians mm. and mm. singers and directors come through. And for me, I think I got that feeling of like intimidation, I think years after like, right. looking back on like yeah, programs yeah. and like being like who sang for who, mm. who was the conductor then. And I'm just now looking back and being like, mm. oh my God, yeah, I, I worked with them yeah, yeah, and I can't remember some of their faces. Mm. And so I think that gave me like a, a more profound sense of appreciation at what I did. Yeah. Cause I think before I'd, I was just like, Oh, it's just a thing I did as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, even my parents or people would be like, what do you mean? It's just a thing that you did. Mm -hmm. You know how big that is. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah, but you know, <laughs> we move on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's only after the fact. Um, so I just want to jump into topic two, um, which is uh, dance and education. So I want to jump a little bit more into the world of street dancing. So... Um, you represented the United Kingdom twice at the UDO World Street Dance Championships. So how did you get started and eventually qualify for that competition? So when I moved schools um, to Elstree Academy, yeah. um, at the time they brought on a new tutor who happened to be a dancer and choreographer who mm -hmm. had worked with young people. And he sort of kind of wanted to form a crew. Right. And was this the force? Yes, that was <laughs> the force. And it was really exciting for me, especially because, you know, moving from Japan and then for a few years living in the UK, I kind of mm. had to stop certain things that I would have done just because I couldn't read or write in English. Right. When oh, I okay. Here. Right, right. And so I just kind of focused on education mm -hmm. as the main thing. Yeah. Even for myself, even at that age, I was just like, yeah, I want to do fun things, mm -hmm. but I need to be able to kind of adjust that I can actually communicate with people and right, actually yeah, can yeah. do things I want to do. But mm -hmm. let me just focus on my education first. So for me, um, I hadn't done hip hop in like a few years. Yeah. And then when this came up, I was just like, oh my God, like I can do this mm. and still continue with my studies or whatever. Because mm -hmm. I like studying. And yeah, I remember the first audition it was really funny. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Just waggling my arms around. Like freestyling. Yeah, just freestyling. Yeah. Like a style of hip hop that was like <laughs> not outdated. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, street dance at the time, um, it was another style of form that was coming in from mm. America again. So now yeah. it used to be called urban style choreography. Now it's open style choreography. Right. So coming from like the East and Southeast Asian Americans, the black Americans, they created this very amazing star. So that was coming in. Yeah. And then, so I was kind of watching that on YouTube at the same time. Right. And then when I saw that they were doing a crew, I was just like, oh, dude. Yeah, yeah. I've got to join. Yeah, yeah. And then we started to compete in regional championships mm -hmm. and we were doing really well. Like, yeah. you know, top three every time. Nice. And then we qualified for the Worlds mm -hmm. and it was in Glasgow. Okay, right. 
And I thought that was amazing because at the time I watched this really bad film, dance film. Um, I can't remember what it, what was it called. I don't know. Anyway. Was it the British version of like Step Up? Because I think it's called like Street Dance 3D. Something like that. Yeah. Street Dance. And there was another B-Boy film that was sort of like, kind of about like the world championship. Oh, right. Okay. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. Um, but I was sort of inspired by that. I'm like, oh my God, like I get to kind of live this fantasy of going to a competition. Yeah. And it was huge. Mm. I mean, it was, every country was there. Even Japan was there. Yeah, yeah. And I got to speak to them, mm -hmm. which was really nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course, Japan, 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 you know, they won it. And of course, the Germans won it mm -mm. as well. Mm -hmm. But even getting into top 10. Yeah. For us, that was just an amazing experience. And yeah, it was it was really nice. I think it was the first time that I felt that sense of like, belonging I'm You're like right. ah mm. like, this is my team mm. these are my guys um, because that's how it was during school as well mm -hmm. like you knew who to go to yeah and you sat together and it was really nice to have that sense of um, mm. community right so I, I really enjoyed that period of time and it was a very influential time I think and one of the things I was watching the street dance competitions of 2019, because I guess that's just right before that COVID hit, so I could watch. So I was watching like a battle of like uh, under 16s, I think. And the thing that was interesting to me is like male dancers and female dancers could actually like battle each other. There wasn't this sort of thing. Like, and I was thinking in terms of like sports and men and women competing together, like dance actually pretty is like a level like playing field, depending what sort of, you know, if you're popping and locking, mm -hmm. like it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you know, if your locks are like hitting hard. Don't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't Exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I did watch this, a uh, young Japanese lady, uh, battle this guy and yeah, she just like destroyed him. It was yeah. just, it was insane. Actually insane. Um, yeah. So, so just moving from the world of like street competitive sort of street dancing, that sort of stuff. Um, as you say, which can be seen as like, in terms of your routine, you can build your routines and the, the language, um, I guess is like created in a less, I don't want to say it a less formal way, but it's, I guess like it's not as rigidly, rigidly sort of like structured as say formal, uh, dance training. So I just want to jump back to 2015 where you studied the Eel Street, uh, stream arts Academy, where you trained in dance, drama and music. And I'd mm -hmm. like to know for you, what were the benefits and limitations of formally studying dance in that regard? Um, for me, it was sort of refreshing mm -hmm. to put down on paper and learn theory right. of dance. Okay. I thought that was interesting. I did struggle because mm -hmm. there's a lot of theory and there's a lot of learning about how the body and how the joints work. Mm. So like you're kind of taught how to write choreography. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And you sort of have to like inquire which parts of the bodies you're moving with this type of movement. Right. And learning all the muscle joints. And mm -hmm. then, that was a bit overwhelming for me. And, but of course it kind of helped me along the way. But at the time I was just like, why am I doing this? Just, mm. just let me dance. So how do you, it's like writing choreography, like writing a music score. Like how do you actually write a piece of choreography out on a piece of paper? Is it symbols or do you? There's, there's so many different ways of kind of writing down choreography. For example, like Laban. Okay. Was a guy who kind of came up with his own kind of style, ethos, and kind mm. of culture, culture around it. And it kind of involved mathematics. And like, he would draw these weird patterns and like where to stand, where to, uh, where to go. Mm. Um, talking about how much you can extend your arm to kind of oh, wow. execute this movement. Yeah. It's about the kinesphere, how everyone has sort of this 
sphere of space mm -hmm. where we can interact with it. Um, Trisha Brown, um, she created a, uh, sort of a format where you can, it's called Trisha Brown's Cube. Okay. Basically, you kind of label, um, you imagine that you're in a cube or if you're in a space, you look at all the four corners and you kind of label them um, A to Z. Yeah. And then you sort of kind of spell out your name. Okay. And then you can kind of create a choreography out of that. Mm -hmm. Or you can just simply write down what you see, write down what you're doing as best as you can. Yeah. And for me, that was really interesting, but very helpful at the same time. Mm. And But of course, at the time, dance education in the UK is contemporary dance, mm. which is something that I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. So that was another moment of kind of readjusting my body into this much more fluid and much more elegant form of dance. Right. And I found that to be sort of like another trigger where I was like, oh, actually, I really like dancing this way. I find there's a sense of relief mm -hmm. and I don't feel like having to be so combative. Right. All the time, I'm being ready to like battle someone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You yeah. Because I think competitive dance, you're kind of built to compete. Mm, yeah. Whereas I found competitive, where I found contemporary dance, doing those classes, I just found it really nice to kind of diff move different parts of my body, and kind of exploring that. So, for example, a lot of the influences that I have now, like Akram Khan, who was a huge influence for me at the time, watching his show Zero Degrees, mm -hmm. and that was another moment where I was like oh, you can do that in dance. Yeah. And then, so for me, um, I'm very glad that I took those classes. Right. And I took it, and I just want to, like, you know, thank my tutor, um, James Golds, who mm. was just an amazing teacher and dancer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm grateful. So up until this point, uh, it's just been sort of dance focused from what I understand. And then I understand that your creative identity and focus shift from being a dancer to a visual artist and theatre practitioner back in 2017 when you attended Middlesex University's mm -hmm. BA Theatre Arts degree. So can you tell me the tipping point which changed your creative journey around that time? Um, I would say the tipping point was when I was probably deciding where to go for university. Mm -hmm. Um because I was thinking, do I just focus on one skill yeah, or try and adapt and use my other skills as well? Because at the same time, I love my drama and I loved production tech as well. Because mm -hmm. that's something that I took as a B-tech mm. by accident. Right. I didn't want to take it, yeah, but I, was, I had to take it because right. it was either that or something else that I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of fell in love with learning what goes behind and beyond mm. the performance. Mm. And I found like a really deep, profound appreciation for that. And I kind of wanted to inquire that further. So it was all these factors kind of merging into one, but definitely not going to dance school was painful as mm. a decision. Mm -hmm. And I still feel like a really small part of me regrets that. Right. Even though I shouldn't, mm. because I wouldn't have had this realization or this tipping point of where I am now. Yeah. Without making that decision. So I'm kind of grateful for myself for doing that. But at the same time, 
there is that sense of longing yeah to be part of the dance world again and like being a dancer is like not easy just being part of an ensemble like there is an insane amount of work that you have to do and there's an insane yep. amount of punishment that you put on your body it actually reminds me a little bit uh, um, a few years ago I actually watched the movie I forget the guy's name but it's basically called The White Crow which is basically about this Russian dancer that ended up defecting at the end of the movie to like America ah yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so you just sort of see like just the, we see that guy sort of like journey and the and, uh, and the, I guess like the conflict and then his love of like dance and everything else that goes along with that um and knowing a few dancers in my time as well like it's very it, it takes a very special human being to say like um i just want to be part of this ensemble and i will dance as long as my body is able yeah. to like dance because it's funny um i mentioned it just we were spe speaking um before about seeing the maurice cunningham documentary and one of his quotes he said is that you're training an instrument that deteriorates from like birth yeah. which is so in just such an interesting way of like looking at it that you're literally fighting against yourself you're I guess because throughout time you can improve your form and your function, but I guess on a cellular level, you you are uh, you are deteriorating. So, was there anything about that to you that, in terms of like just almost applying this sort of like monk-like part of your um, career, probably maybe would like I don't know how long professional dancers' careers last. Is that sort of like twenty years or something like that? Not even. You could push it to thirty. Okay, just yeah, about. Just about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So was there a factor, was that anything running through your mind of like, oh, I'm, am I going to be able to sort of physically be able to commit for that length of time to just purely be a, a dancer? Um, no, mm. I think people were telling me that, mm. but I wasn't listening because mm -hmm. I've always had sort of this, this delusion of myself where I'm just like, no, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do it as long as I can. I don't care when it ends, but I will do it if I have to. Yeah. Yeah. And so that idea of kind of suffering it sounds it's cliche, but kind of idea of suffering for your work. Yeah, I've already, I've always kind of accepted mm -hmm. as a part of becoming an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cliche. Yeah. yeah, but I think there's some truth in it. So for me, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Okay. It was just for me, it was losing well, the, the fear of losing that expression. Right. I see. Yeah, yeah. Because I felt like dance for me was a very strong and it still is mm. a form of expression and kind of releasing tension. Mm. And I think it's one of the most powerful ways of expressing emotion mm -hmm. without even realizing. So just alongside your higher educational experience at that time, were you going to cultural institutions, if I can even say the word, um, like the VNA, the place, Tate Modern to broaden your creative horizons as well outside of the more formal stuff that you're doing? Um, yeah, always. Every, do you know what? I have never been to the VNA. Oh, okay. Ever, which is weird. Yeah, still time. <laughs> yeah, I still got time. I might, I might put that onto my um, checklist for twenty twenty three. Yeah, go to yeah, the yeah. VNA. But um, yeah, places like the Barbican as well, National Theatre, mm -hmm. Sadler Wells. Um, yeah, I would go to, go to all of these places, even from a young age. But I think the most place that I've been to was mm -hmm. probably the Tate Modern. Okay, yeah. Um, it was like the first kind of contemporary gallery that I went to when I first moved here. Yeah. And it's always been a sense of peacefulness mm -hmm. whenever I go there. Yeah. I've been there so many times, but I still get lost. Mm. So there's always that sense of childhood wonder. And yeah, I'd love to do something there mm -hmm. at some point. I don't know. Was there any particular art that you saw there that had a particular effect on you? Any other artist you can sort of call out or installation that you saw? Uh, Pierre Solage. Okay. 
Um, he's a very brilliant abstract painter who kind of uses black. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Forefront. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he's sort of known as a master of black. And when I saw his painting the mm. first time, I was moved quite a bit. Yeah. Tremendously. And then I kind of forgotten about him. Yeah. And then it was only recently that I came across it again and kind of did a deep dive into what he does. And that really inspired me to do this sort of diagram. Mm hmm of sort of like an artistic family lineage. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of put myself in the middle and then I would put all the people that inspire me and who okay. inspired them and their predecessors. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And I realized that everyone is somehow linked to one another. Mm. And so for me, looking at his painting, um, a few months ago against the Tate was sort of, it yeah. felt like I was kind of reunite, reuniting with like a lost family member. And, mm. I, and I got really emotional. Oh, I nice. I didn't cry my eyes out. Yeah. I don't know if everyone in the Tate, but I felt like, I felt like it. Yeah, well, it's nice when you have this sort of cathartical, um, well, like, and maybe cathartic is not the right experience, but when you have like a real like connection with a piece of art that really sort of like, touches, because yeah. it, it, sometimes it can kind of feel kind of uh, rare. So just after, so just like after four years of higher education and internships and the onset of a global pandemic, why did you choose to study at Central St. Martin's and take the MA in performance design and practice? Um, because I sort of had a point during my BA mm -hmm. where I kind of started to realize what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I kind of birthed this essence of this thing that I wanted to create, but I didn't know what it was. I mm. couldn't quite translate that into a creative language yet. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted a place where I could experiment without judgment bias mm. and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and always thought that CSM was, sort of kind of that place to do that and just kind of seeing CSM kids every now and then, you know, mm. walking past King's Cross and, yeah. you know, they're all crazy. Mm. Uh, but I just always thought, yeah, you know, that's kind of my crazy. Yeah. And, and I got in. Would you kind of say, cause as we've sort of been uh, speaking throughout this sort of interview, would you say that that's a particular point? It's like a combination of putting in like the dance, the theater, like basically up until that point, all the things you sort of um, had kind of done that you could, Centrally focus focus that in one particular kind of like place. So you could experiment with all those things mm -hmm. like all at once. Whereas if you were just doing one of them, you wouldn't be a wouldn't be able to uh, have a sort of free range to be able to put all that sort of stuff together. So was that something that was sort of again like? I think so because I think um, I sort of had a trigger moment mm. when I did my final degree show mm -hmm. in my BA. I did this um, dance theatre piece even though the directing module itself was mm -hmm. to direct a play. Yeah. And so I kind of fought to direct my own devised play, yeah. even though it wasn't really a play. It was mm. definitely a dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I kind of, I worked with these two brilliant Portuguese dancers mm -hmm. and, you know, very simple white space, one chair yeah, and just two performers. And that was a point where I was like, okay, I've done what I'm trying to explore, but how can I make this better? Right. I don't know enough. Mm. That was hard to admit Yeah. at the time. Cause you mm -hmm. know, when you're in uni, you know, you've done a few years, you're like, yeah, I know my, I know my shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I got to that point after doing that show, I was like, actually, I don't know anything. Mm. I was like, I've only learned specifics. Mm -hmm. And then, so I thought it'd be best to apply. And then it was weird that that's when the pandemic hit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was strange. Um, for me, that was horrible, but at the same time, it gave me 
a solid year of just kind of teaching myself mm -hmm. and just exposing myself to different practitioners, artists, yeah, and performances. So luckily, a lot of places, um, theaters, they did a lot of online shows, yeah, and I kind of watched all the European ones. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, Shabuna Berlin, um, every week they would do like 10 shows online. Right. And it'd be all scheduled. Yeah, yeah. And it was all free. Mm. So I'd watch, I don't know, three or four a day, taking notes and just kind of looking into who are these directors, who are these performers mm. and just kind of buying books as well. And just, so that was a, a huge study period. So I felt like I studied for four years straight. Right, before yeah. Before I even started my master's. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I started at CSM, I knew what I wanted to do. Right, yeah. Um, and I knew what I wanted to explore and I had already projects in mind that I wanted to present. Mm. And so I kind of came up with this plan that I would kind of complete this trilogy that I started um, from my final grad shirt, the BA. Mm. Um, so that was Sempre. And then 2021, I did La Noia. And then in May 2022, mm. I did Archipelago. So that mm -hmm. was sort of like a trilogy okay. that I did for myself. Right. It was a bit ambitious. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. But I did it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm very glad. Yeah. Um, so just moving on to topic three um, and into if I, ever, if I ever get around to living. Yeah. Um, was that your final piece for the MA? It was one of them. Okay. Um, so I remember having a discussion with some of the tutors and they were like, so how many, so what are you presenting as your yeah. final thing? And I was like, I'm presenting two. Mm -hmm. They were like, what? What? Two? <laughs> okay. Why would you do that? I'm just yeah. like, because I want to give it a go. Mm. And if I ever get around to living was probably the most um, impulsive and most kind of, it came from a place of, from a really deep place of just, just seeing what happens. Yeah. So I just felt like I had to make it even though I had barely any references. Okay. Barely any research. Yeah. I just felt like I had to do this performance because it all kind of came to me at, in one go. Mm -hmm. So for me, like the way I create is like, I see images in my head and I yeah. just have to join them together. Mm -hmm. So for that show, particularly all six sections right. came to me back to back. Okay. And it, it started from a video that I did in 2020 of me kind of just falling into the wall okay. in my room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I filmed that, completely forgot about it, mm. found it on my phone. And then I was like, oh, let me, let me see what I can do with that. Mm -hmm. And then I took it to the studio, tried it, tried it with it about for 10 minutes. Mm. And then I was like, ah, okay. I, I think I can turn this into right. a show. So I just got six people that I just knew from the course or just kind of judged it by face value. I was just like, oh, you would look cool in a performance. Yeah. That's how, that's kind of how it work. I'm just like, I'll just bring on people by random. So for people who are listening, um, and you can check out on YouTube, I'll put a link underneath. What is, if I ever get around to living about, what, how would you describe to somebody who's never seen it before? Um, mm, this, is, this is one of the things, right? Because it was so impulsive. I'm just, yeah. um, but I would say it's sort of, a demonstration of kind of dealing with the past mm -hmm. and trying to acknowledge something, not let, letting go of it, yeah. but just acknowledging something in your past and trying to move on with your life. Yeah. Because it was at a point when I created this, I just felt very stuck. Mm -hmm. 
and I just wanted to kind of release myself somehow. Yeah. So in throughout the performance, uh, these six performers are trying to look for something on the wall. They're trying mm -hmm. to go through the wall. You can't go through a wall. Yeah. So the whole point is that um, sometimes you kind of stop yourself from moving forwards mm -hmm. and there's nothing else that's holding you back in a certain way. Yeah. And you can leave if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's kind of trying to look back on what was important and what was the problem and yeah. trying to kind of deal with it in a certain way. It's very vague mm. because, yeah, it was one of those ideas where I just wanted to try it. Yeah. But it's definitely that element of letting go of something. Yeah. That's very important. Um, so just getting to sort of specifics a little bit, in terms of how it starts... Um, there's a door that opens and then one of the performers sort of enters mm -hmm. and then after a period of time more and more performers sort of like yeah. build up and then and then they uh, go towards the the wall so one of the interesting things and when I sort of studied like movement and that kind of thing is like taking stage but also the first moment when you actually enter the stage and your particular presence so do you have any particular feeling um, about that or what, um, what was the kind of like atmosphere that you were trying to create in that initial moment to get people's attention I think for me, it was to explore how much I could play with silence. Okay. And how the most simple actions and simple things could create a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. And how our attention could be directed towards that. Mm. So, because originally the performance was meant to have music right. with it that I made really badly. Oh, you made the music yourself? Yeah. Oh, so nice. I, I just kind of remixed like this Gregorian chant and okay, just like, yeah, chopped yeah. it up and made it really kind of ethereal. It was okay. Yeah, yeah. Bad. Um, but it was literally the night before the performance where we sort of had a final rehearsal. Mm. We did it with the music. And then once that was finished, I was like, guys, I'm cutting the music. Yeah. And they're like, really? But why? And mm. I was just like, it just doesn't feel right. And mm. this is probably the only time where I'm going to sound authoritative as a director. Like, yeah. I'm cutting it. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. Bit weird doing that. Cause I'm not usually like, <laughs> I, was, I was just like, guys, I just have yeah. to get it out of the way. So, mm -hmm. and I think it made the performance 10 times more powerful. Yeah. Because you could hear all the little noises. Yeah. So there's an interesting thing when I was watching this um, Cunningham documentary about Marie, I forget what his name is, but it's Maurice Marie. I, I don't know. Um, dyslexia again but what was interesting about that and what i would draw a parallel to is the fact that when he was doing his performances he did work with like john cage and there's a lot of abstract music and he was sort of working against it. he didn't believe that music should accompany the music the two things should kind of be an opposite and create something else but when he wasn't playing with that sort of musicality um to his work if you just listen silence that the basically people's bare feet on a stage sounds like paintbrush strokes mm -hmm. And essentially what I was thinking in a sort of abstract way, the fact the movement is like building up material, it's building up sort of movement, physical sort of like paint that you're sort of like playing with. And there is something very nice about silence, but just the idea of a bare foot on a stage and people moving around. Yeah. It's very primal. Um, so in regards to the more sort of technical um, specifics of like, in terms of like line lines of movement, because that's a very key thing in dance of mm. where you stage left, stage right, where you draw the focus and going back to Cunningham. He didn't believe in having sort of center stage. He would have like performances happening on the very like far right or the yeah. very um, far left. So 
in terms of your creative choices and the planes that you wanted to work with, how did that sort of like come about? And also just going back to earlier, were you noting the choreography before um, for the, your performers so they could like read it or, or whatever? Um, it was actually through sketches. Okay. And I do this a lot recently with my performances where mm. when I come up with it, because it comes as an image, yeah, I'll have to draw it out. And then most of the time throughout that process, it was me showing the the performers. I'm like, can you do this? Yeah. It's really bad drawing, but can you do that? <laughs> just, just give it a go. Yeah. And then, and that's how it was throughout the whole process of just kind of deconstructing the image mm-hmm. and how we can bring it to life. Yeah. Um, but I'm also very, very inspired by paintings. Yeah. And the composition. Mm-hmm. So it's this little subtle details of kind of imitating certain body positions and mm-hmm. paintings. Okay. And just putting that into the space and how I could make that move. Yeah. And f- especially with this piece, it was very much so, it's very 2D, I think, mm. because, you know, they were all wearing blacks. So yeah. Practically silhouettes mm-hmm. against a very white background. So I kind of wanted to play with shapes and lines. Mm-hmm. And just sort of with the silence of kind of just removing everything from that space. Mm. But what was interesting was that the silence was really deafening. Mm-hmm. It was very loud. Mm. And that was sort of a really interesting interesting thing to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just generally just imitating paintings and just see how I can transpose that into a real space and just see how that will work. I was really inspired by... Um, this um, illustration on this Greek pottery mm. of um, sort of the first humans that yeah. Plato described. Okay, right. Where there were these two figures, uh, these black silhouettes kind of conjoined together. And that was sort of another tr- influential point, I think, for that piece mm. of just having these bodies merge mm. and coming out, sometimes not knowing whose joint is who. Right. And I thought that was really interesting to play with. And yeah, that was was it really and how did you decide on the use of rhythm and time because that plays a very important time a uh, very important element i should say uh, within that and did you sort of did you have, have a go at playing around like speeding up like slowing down how did you make those sort of choices um it was i think going through it over and over mm-hmm. and just to seeing which moments could be held mm-hmm. as an image and which images that can be broken. Yeah. Um, but it was really hard to find that rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was no text, there was no music and trying to figure out a way of keeping the spectator engaged. Yeah. Because to be honest, all it really was, when you think about it, you're just watching six people Mm -hmm. bashing themselves against the wall for 25 minutes. Mm. And I had that in my mind. I'm like, okay, I know that's like a horrible thing to say to myself, but how can I kind of break that down yeah. and figure out the rhythm? And so what we did was, yeah, just finding different ways of holding and releasing and finding moments where they would abruptly come out yeah, very mm-hmm. close to the audience and just finding, going to different points in the space and repeating certain gestures and actions yeah, and just kind of playing with that. And, but it was, I think it is literally, it's just luck. Right. I think. I think it was because each performance, because they did three performances back to back. Right. And I I would say each performance had a different rhythm to it. 
Yeah. So whatever the audience then that captured would have had a different experience of rhythm. Right. Yeah. It definitely has a very like live element to it, like seeing like live music. Whereas if you see theatre, yes, there's very small nuances, but essentially it's on rails. Like you're not like if you see a matinee, it's going to be pretty similar to the. Mm-hmm. The, the matinee you saw the day before but I guess with this sort of thing there's more chance for randomness yeah. um, within it um, just very quickly in terms of like if you're taking the same idea in a more traditional theatre sort of sense dialogue based sort of storytelling approach how do you think that would have limited your voice and your vision like so I'm, essentially what I'm asking mm-hmm. is if you'd explore this in a more traditional theatre format like you'd actually written dialogue and that sort yeah. of stuff um how do you think that would have limited you hmm. i think it would have been a completely different piece mm-hmm. and um, that's a difficult one what would it have been what would it be the limitations i think i would have had to considered the ways in which what the others would do if one person or two person, mm. two people were speaking. Yeah. And what would the others be doing? Mm. So I think I would have had to consider their positioning, mm. but also kind of, if, if it is going to be a traditional version of it, I'd had to consider character building as well. Yeah. Motivation. It'd be, and it would essentially be problem solving. You'd yeah. have to justify why people were trying to go through an immovable black brick wall. Yeah. Um, and then you got the suspension of disbelief of like, why would six random strangers try and <laughs> run at a wall? Push against a wall. But yeah. I think in that sense, it would have been a very absurdist text. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which I'm not, yeah, I'm very open to mm. seeing how that works. Um, but it's probably something that I won't do mm. for a long time. I'm not saying that I won't use text ever. Yeah. Um, I kind of am in a new project that I'm working on. Right. But it's only like a, a monologue for one scene and that's it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm definitely willing to explore text a bit more in the future. Uh, and just also quickly again, can we just, just jump into Romeo Casalucci, the theatre director, artist and designer? Because I understand he had a big influence in your practice and work. So could you maybe perhaps give me a direct example, unconscious or unconsciously, of how Romeo inspired some of the creative choices in If I Ever Get Around to Living? I think it's his use of composition, mm-hmm. but also being comfortable in sort of manipulating time. Right. Like he's very aware um, how time can be used mm-hmm. and silence can be used as a very powerful tool, tool to kind of emphasize a certain idea or theme. Yeah. And um, because a lot of his works there isn't any text mm. at all. And then when you're watching some of these performances, you think, how did he get away with doing that? Mm. And actually people coming to pay and watch. <laughs> so, okay. Cause some of the performances yeah. you think, really? Cause there was, um, what was it? There was a performance that he did in France with his previous company mm-hmm. where it was just, um, these containers just kind of dropping sand. Okay. It was like loads of them for like 40 minutes. Yeah. Whilst the classical musical composition was playing. Mm. And that was it. Okay. So I think I was very inspired by his sense of like, it's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And you're going to watch it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I liked that. Not arrogance, but like that. 
I don't know. How would you hmm. bravado? I'd say bravado. Yeah, like statement. The statement. Yeah, it's like I don't want to just show you something that you're used to. Or, yeah, but, and it, it's like a thing of like he's in opposition of the audience because a lot of time if you're talking about mainstream media, it's sort of catering to the audience, it's inviting the audience in. Uh, whereas this is actively pushing the audience away in a sense of you having a very visceral reaction of like, mm. oh, you can watch this, but I'm not inviting you to actually watch this. You're gonna, yeah. Um, it is weird like how things invite you and then push you, and I think both are both are valid. I think, but definitely he, I do agree with him that he really emphasizes the relationship with mm. the audience. He he loves spectatorship mm. like he prides a lot in kind of involving them yeah and i remember he said that if there weren't any audience members to watch a show mm. all it is is just bodies and lights mm. and that's it there'd be nothing so yeah, the audience yeah. is just as important mm. to well the performance itself and yeah it's really interesting um, i'm still learning about him a lot right There's so much to learn about castellucci because you watch his performances and it's really hard to intellectualize some things, mm. but mm. the way he is able to write books and essays about this one specific scene yeah, and justifying every single action that he's done for something that's just so absurd and very simple. It's, mm. He's a really intelligent man. Um, and did you get a chance to speak to any of the audience members afterwards and did they come up with any sort of questions or thoughts that were kind of surprising at all? Um, one of the audience members had to leave as soon as it finished and they started to cry. Okay. And there was a lot of people crying. Okay. Um, not, and I'm not like, I wasn't like happy from a place of schadenfreude, you know, I wasn't like, aha, I made you cry. Yeah, yeah, I got you, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, it was just the way in which, how the piece resonated with them. Mm -hmm. That was a very common sort of, feedback that somehow what they saw mm. in those images of these people trying to push against the wall was very personal to them. Yeah. And it kind of connected to a specific moment in their life where they felt like they were trapped or they mm. felt like they were just bashing themselves against the wall. Yeah. And then trying to find that resolution of leaving, mm. but also kind of trying to acknowledge that a resolution is not always a resolution. There is mm. another exposition. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of was a point that I was trying to make in that performance where everyone had left the space, but only one person remained and he kept on pushing against the wall. And that's sort of like a, a motif that I like to play a lot with my projects where I like to show you that there's a, a sense of hope to certain things, but the reality of it is that we're just preparing ourselves for the next hill, yeah. hill. Yeah, yeah. And we're just going to repeat the same thing over and over and over and over. It sounds mm. depressing, but I think we do find those moments of joy and hope, and I think that's what I want to emphasise as well. And just looking back on that project, what was the biggest thing that you learned from that and how are you carrying that forward in your creative practice? Um, I would say don't over-prepare, um, because that's something that I did for my second final grad piece, which was in a much bigger theater. I had planned this thing for like a year mm. and the process was much more rigid. And I think I realized that I need to find a balance between this sense of like trusting my instincts mm. and that essence of just being like, let me just try this and see mm. what happens. But at the same time, it's a very 
scary way of working. Yeah. Because throughout that whole process with her father get around to living, I just didn't know what I was doing was good or bad mm-hmm. at all. So I didn't realize what I was really doing or how it felt until the end. Yeah. When I heard people give me back feedback and mm. I was like, ah, okay. Mm. So that's what I was looking for. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the feedback that I wanted mm. because I didn't know, but it's definitely worth the, the gamble. Yeah. And I want to continue working that way of not over preparing being more playful and just seeing what happens in the room. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to work, I think, for me. Um, so moving on to topic four, thoughts for 2023, because we are in the first Monday, 2nd of Jan, as we're recording this. So very new year. Very <laughs> new, new year. year. Um, so how would you energise the next generation, Jed Al- Gen, Gen Alpha, I should say. Um, we're past Gen Z, so we've now gone back to the first Roman numeral of the um, alphabet. Um, to attend theatre, opera and dance recitals and can they still purely be sold as an analogue experience? Generation Alpha? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm assuming you're you're Gen Z, so yeah. after Z has to go, has to start right back so at have the, we gone through the whole thing? Yeah, we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I believe so, yeah. Okay, let me answer your question. <laughs> I got really carried away. I was like, we've started from A again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do we engage alpha? Yeah. Hmm. I think we need to be more inclusive in platforming younger people in the creative arts and giving them more opportunity. But at the same time, it's very scary because there's a lot of budget cuts mm-hmm. for creative education. And I worry that they're just creating a generation of very lost and frustrated young people. Yeah. I can't find an, an outlook mm. and I feel, I feel very scared for them, I think, but, but of course with the arts, you know, it's, it is kind of generally targeted towards a specific audience. Yeah. So, but then with TikTok, there's been a lot of um, surgence of kind of like people going to the opera, young people going to the opera, going to performances. Yeah. Um, going to see like their friends' performances or mm. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's kind of brought in a new generation of audience. So hopefully in that sense, we can still engage with them, but also for them to come to see it live. Because mm. I think that's the, one of the most important things. Yes, online theatre, online performances has been a very inclusive thing because not a lot of people can go to the theatre. A, a lot of people can go to concerts. And yeah. Because it's expensive as well, but at the same at the same time, if there is a way in which we can engage them live, mm. I think that would be something to achieve. And for me as well, I think yeah. just to kind of if I get to a point where I can give back, mm. I will definitely do it because I know what I felt like yeah. when I first started out. Well, I'm still starting it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think? Because I think about it because. You know, you think about like Shakespeare, you think about opera, like dance recitals from all over the the world. And you think, oh God, like, oh, it feels, you know, it feels so old. And a lot of these texts and things are like really old, like hundreds of years old or whatever. But there is something inherently cool about seeing, as you just mentioned, like a friend, like perform or going to see like a performance of something that we oftentimes 
uh, like diminish something due to its sort of like age, but can still seem like very like relevant like now. But mm -hmm. I just think there's like a lot of baggage, and also the thing that sort of sprung into mind is like, is Gen Alpha going to mind that there's no like chat next to like the performance, like like scrolling up like emojis yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of stuff like that I sort of think about, but then maybe I think that's maybe a, pre a preoccupation with like uh, people who get old or, or older. They're like, oh, well, these young whippersnappers won't appreciate it the way that I did. But when I was like younger, um, there's sort of old stuff that I really appreciated that resonated with me, that spoke to me. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the main point is just how do you keep these things alive, like the opera, like the theatre, because essentially they are very, well, can be very niche unless you're seeing yeah. like some Harry Potter uh, play yeah exactly mm. like yeah it, it is trying to get to them and, it, and just sort of referring back to the thing that you spoke about um when we were speaking earlier um before the podcast about reinterpreting the carol churchill play you think there's got to be i think there's got to be this malleability this be able to sort of remix stuff very quickly to for people that have got a very a short a short attention spans i don't believe is like the right word but you're dealing with a generation they can process information very, very quickly yeah. and they get bored very, very quickly. Um, so I think maybe the answer is w with this sort of stuff is just you, like with anything, you have to just generate content very, very like quickly that can still be based on like the classics, but it's yeah. just got to be go like a lot like harder, but then maybe that's sort of missing the point. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one because I feel like at the same time, some of these big institutions mm. still hold on to the glory days. Mm. And I think they're still trying to emphasize that through their programming. Yeah. And to be honest, that, that that is not really attractive for young people. Yeah. So I think if we can find a way of kind of breaking that stigma mm. and that bourgeoisness yeah, yeah, yeah. of arts, mm. um, I think that's a, I think there'll be a much more hopeful outcome for young yeah. people. Um, so if you could change one thing, well, no, actually, that's not that's not correct. If you could make one thing, that's anything, ten percent better in two thousand and twenty-three, what would it be and why? Ten percent. Yeah, just ten percent. Like for me, or like? Oh, well, it could like, be for you. Anything, because I think like ten percent you could actually do. If you're trying to get make something one hundred percent better, I think that's impossible. But ten percent yeah. is manageable. So anything, anything doesn't have to be art related, but anything ten percent better um, could be you for you, or could be a for anyone. See, now I'm like conflicted because I'm just thinking. Okay, let's just go for you. Let's okay, say for okay, you. okay, okay. Because okay. yeah. now I'm thinking, ah, oh, society. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah, this is just because, yeah, we'll just, uh -huh. yeah. Um, 10% for me, I think, mm. being able to find more platforms to create the work mm -hmm. from my practice. Um, because I have been very fortunate that I've been able to network and find work related to movement direction. Yeah and the year before the light and design and so on. But I think for me, it'd be great if I can improve that exposure, exposure of what I do yeah. as my own practice on different stages. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily I am doing a festival this July in yeah. Slovenia mm -hmm. um, to present a piece of work. Um, so hopefully I can bring that back to London yeah. and present something here. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I've contacted some theatres yeah. Never go back to me. <laughs> yeah. Usual. Um, but I'm just going to keep pushing that and just see if I can find a venue where they would be happy to produce something like that. Um, I can put you in contact with Haifa Studios because they also do, they do art space, but also they do performative stuff. In fact, I think they've got like a theatre group that works at a shop in like Margate or something oh, like wow. that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I interviewed uh, Camilla 
um, who is the head of that particular charity. So I can link you up with that because that's precisely what they do. Please, um, anything. Yeah. Um, okay, so just following on for that question, what's the one thing that you're going to start doing in 2023 and what's the one thing you're going to stop doing in 2023? New year, new me. Yeah. Um, what would I like to do? Hmm. Um, I think take care of my physical well-being okay, a good. bit more. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I could do a bit more exercise. Mm -hmm. Feeling a bit stiff recently. <laughs> I think if I could keep that consistent. Yeah. Um, which I need to actually. Um, but I think one thing I'd like to get rid of, I probably think doubting myself. Okay. I think because it's just getting to a point where I'm just annoyed by it. I'm just mm. like, really? Mm. Why are you doubting that, man? You just started something. You've just come up with this idea. Yeah. Like, why do you immediately think, oh, that can't be possible because of that or health and safety or yeah, that'll cost a lot of money. Mm. I'm just like, well, let me just try it, man. So mm. I do feel like I have that internal dialogue, dialogue yeah. with that part of myself where I'm always kind of arguing. Mm. And even that in itself is frustrating because yeah. then you're just in this fight or flight mode constantly. Mm. And I'd like to be able to kind of challenge that a bit more and just try and just follow my instinct and just see what happens. Okay. Um, uh, so as a young British creative in London faced with a Tory government, which has just defunded the English National Opera, do you feel uh, optimistic about being able to continue your practice over the next couple of years? Hmm. Yes and no. Okay. Um, I think I, I think I kind of said to you early before the podcast talking about how things are becoming more restrictive yeah. in terms of content. Um, if it keeps going that way, I'm very concerned about what I can do. I think I could def definitely still work in theatre mm -hmm. and do and hopefully work with really brilliant people in different theatres. That's fine. But in terms of my practice, um, I'd be very concerned about because of the restrictions I'd probably have to take it elsewhere yeah. go somewhere else mm -hmm. which is Europe um, even though they have their issues yeah, yeah, yeah. as well um, that's something I realised a few years ago where I kind of idolised Europe mm. for their culture and the arts and the theatre yeah even though they're just probably going through the same situation as us but mm. I think there's certain places where that restriction is a little bit more loose mm -hmm. like Germany for example yeah Um so, and I don't really want to do that. I'd, I'd really want to make some sort of change and make some sort of exposure of this type of work in this country. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see how it goes in the next few years. And the thing about mentioning about the English National Opera is the fact that the reason why they defunded it is because they didn't want London just to pure, purely be the centre of like culture in terms of getting the most amount of money that they were get, taking that money and then giving it to places like up north mm -hmm. which I'm like okay I get I get yeah. the fact that you need to sort of share the wealth and we need to have more sort of like cultural hubs which leads me on to my question was like would you you know would you consider yourself to be a more like London centric artist or would you be would you be willing or uh, to like relocate somewhere else you know say like the north of the country to continue your practice and your work it's like is, is geography or location even an issue for you you literally just go wherever you're mm. able to put the work on i think it just depends on the platform and the yeah. access i think for me of course if you're inland it's much more accessible mm -hmm. in terms of going to places there's loads of places that you can go to yeah but then 
And there's a lot of places up north as well. Like, mm-hmm. But I just don't think there's enough support going into those institutions. Yeah. Like, for example, I'd love to present work in Scotland. Like, There's a really brilliant theatre called um, Tramway. Right. Really experimental. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it existed. Yeah. And they all their program is, is absolutely as, in, like insane. Yeah. So for me, I'd love to take more work up to Scotland. Yeah. Up to Glasgow, Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Not sure about the Fringe yet because I feel like I need a bit more money for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a commitment. I don't think people yeah. realise how expensive the Fringe is to, to even put on a show. Like yeah. You're probably going to lose more money than you'll gain. Yeah. And I think that's another issue that mm. they, they need to sort out mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Because it's not really accessible, the Fringe. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess like it is, and again, we haven't really sort of uh, spoken about this, but there is like an awful lot of like, out of pocket expense you have to put in off your own back yep. to like, to work, to like make your work. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I guess like if you're making work that isn't necessarily quote unquote, like, as you said, spoke about, you're not putting like a Harry Potter <laughs> like a play on, there isn't necessarily like the money, but these are the things uh, the more avant-garde or experimental things that actually enrich our culture and like shift it. Yeah. And I, obviously by saying that I'm not denigrating Harry Potter, I'm sure in its own special way, it's changed um, culture. Um, but in terms of broadening people's horizons of what's possible, I think that it is important to, yeah, to put money in and, and, and show work where, um, where you can sit in something and also being able to give people the possibility to watch something they really, really don't like, because then essentially that tells you what you kind of like do like, um, as well. It's just that, it's just that opportunity to be, to just show something and engage and whatever the outcome of that is. I don't know, whatever it is, isn't it? That's the thing. I think they, there's too much assumption on what the audience likes. Mm. Um, if you just give them a chance of giving them a wide range of things to see, they will come and see it. Mm hmm. Because that's the thing that they're, now they're just assuming what the audience likes and what yeah. makes the most money. And there is a lack of an intrinsic value mm-hmm. to culture now. Yeah. And it's a really sad thing to see. Mm. And the audience is now, I'm not saying every production does that, but I'm just saying in general, we're being spoon fed mm. content, mm. which is kind of ironic with social media as well. So there needs to be more risk taking. Mm. And yeah. just presenting a piece of work and just be like, oh, I've brought this guy or someone, whoever from Europe or mm. wherever, he's going to present the show. And that's the thing. We need more access for new work, international work mm. and experimental work. Mm-hmm. That's a very key thing. And finally, what's your dream project if time and money wasn't an issue? Wow. Um, I haven't decided that. I haven't decided that at all. Yeah, I think it just depends on what I'm thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause if I get an opportunity like that, yeah. Um, I'd probably try and make the most of it, but probably something I'd love to try and do like a trilogy again. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to like maybe redo the trilogy that I did, but mm. just completely radically change it because there's certain aspects of the performances that I'm not really proud of. Yeah. And that could be better. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to do some sort of trilogy, maybe readapt. I don't know, Dante's Divine Comedy or something, mm-hmm. or Paradise Lost. It's yeah. this crazy, like big visual <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing. That would be amazing. Okay. Um, so lastly, where can people check out your theatre movement and design work and follow you on social media? Yes. So you can check me out on Instagram. So that's kxn.nak. Sorry for the weird spelling. <laughs> 
And just my website, I think it's www.nakajimake.com. Something like that. I'll, I'll put all this yeah, stuff below. So, basically, the link, yeah. all, the link, and the, the links are in the book. I've, I've just bought a domain, yeah. and I'm still kind of trying to remember <laughs> what it to, is. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be. I'll put all that stuff um, at the end of the episode, so people can check all that sort of stuff. Um, and I guess just my final question is: like sort of a parting thought that you'd like to leave um, uh, people with uh, today? Wow. Yeah, just mm. that can be anyth- anything random. Just anything, anything sort of random. To mind. Okay. Um, I don't want to be like remember my name (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just keep on a lookout Mm -hmm. Um, I promise I'll try my best and do what I came here to do brilliant okay well thank you so much thank you thank you Ken